This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. As the vaccine rolls out in a stumbling, bureaucratic, tumbling way, the pandemic continues to spread at an even faster rate. But on the other hand, children, and especially young children, are unlikely to get the disease and not likely to spread it either. So what are schools doing? How are they responding to the pandemic? Now, we all know that last March, schools shut down their doors for the rest of the school year. But many reopened their doors in September, even though the pattern's uneven across the country. What's happening today? Where are we now? Well, the Center for Reinventing Public Education has been tracking school district response to the challenges of the pandemic by looking at a nationally representative sample of district websites throughout this period. And meanwhile, Education Next has just released a study that asks a nationally representative sample of parents at district private and charter schools about their experiences this past fall. So to discuss these reports, I'm delighted to have with me on the Education Exchange, Bethany Gross, Associate Director of the Center for Reinventing Public Education at the University of Washington. Bethany, thank you for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thank you for having me. Well, Bethany, you've been tracking school district response to the pandemic uh, by looking at their websites and schools shut down last March. Now, what's the situation as of the last time you looked, which I think was in December? Right. We looked at the at the end of December um, and we decided to do this uh, this last look uh, because we were seeing a, a, a bit of a surge in cases that uh, across the country and we had been hearing that districts were starting to change their models. And what we found is that, you know, still uh, about a about 32 percent uh, of districts uh, in our sample were um, operating in a fully remote model. Um, and that was actually represented a bit of a, a reversal of trends that we had seen throughout the fall. Um, and what we had noticed in some of our earlier reviews in November is that districts were actually trying really hard to get um, more students access to in-person learning. Uh, and so, you know, we saw an increase in the number of districts that were offering hybrid models or were kind of um, let, letting younger kids come back in person. Uh, this seemed to re uh, totally reverse that trend. So, you know, what we found throughout the fall is um, that, you know, we, when we opened in, in the August, about 26% of districts were operating fully remote. That declined to about 21% in, in November, but then returned up to this 32% that we found in December. Okay, so those are interesting changes, but um, it, it, this is not a national sample of students, is it? It's a national sample of school districts. Can you sort of explain the difference to our audience? Sure, so we have a sample, as you say, of districts, um, which means what we have is a, a sample of districts that were selected in a way that um, uh, that they represent sort of the, the, the body of districts as a whole, but we know um, that the urban districts 
um, and large city districts um, enroll a disproportionately large number of students. So what we need to do whenever we look at these numbers, if we wanna to try to get a sense of how many students are in different models is to really break them out by locale. So look at what is the, what's the opening status in urban districts? What's the opening status in suburban and what is it in rural districts? And when we do that, do, do that kind of a breakout, we see really vast differences between the opening status of rural and urban school systems with urban school systems disproportionately uh, operating in a remote learning, a fully remote learning setting. Yeah, I think the percentages that I, I read were 74% of urban districts are remote, but only 23% of rural ones are remote and 33% of suburban districts are remote. So that's a big difference. Big cities, yeah. why are big cities going remote and not the suburban areas surrounding them? You'd think the COVID is in one place as much as in the other. It doesn't respect district lines, you know. COVID, if COVID's in Boston, it's in Wellesley. If it's in Seattle, it's going to be, uh, oh, what's that one across the lake there that uh, Bill Be Gates Bellevue. Yes, yeah. It, <laughs> right. COVID's not going to let Bill Gates off the hook. Right. No, that's that is true. Um, and I think that, the, you know, there have been some other researchers who who have looked into this and what are the factors that are driving um, disparate opening status and changes uh, differences across locales and regions. And they, you know, they come down to a variety of factors. Um, but I think that, you know, we know from uh, from households polls and polls of individuals uh, that the that the uh, fear and worry about COVID and the, the extent to which um, people sort of internalize the threat that COVID uh, poses is different in different places and in different locale settings. We know that COVID has uh, impacted our uh, communities of color disproportionately and there, and you can see in household surveys that are done by organizations um, like uh, USC who have been uh, surveying households since the beginning of the pandemic, um, you can see, uh, you know, a disproportionate sort of worry and fear around COVID in, in, in those communities. Um, we also know from other research that, um, that the, the, uh, the you know, reopening status seems to be somewhat driven by politics with more conservative locales, uh, you know, favoring in-person instruction with more, um, more uh, liberal or democratic locales favoring uh, remote instruction. Um, we uh, we can also sort of attribute some of this to um, to some extent sort of the stance states took in reopening um, and the leadership they took in in ensuring uh, that uh, their their school districts open uh, in person or in a hybrid setting with more in person opportunities. But that shouldn't state decision making shouldn't affect the suburban uh, urban difference. I mean, you've got suburbs and in. In, in big cities in every state. So if the governor is doing it, it should be the same in the suburban area as the, as the urban area, I would think. Yeah, and what we what our data can't tell is within a, a certain re, within a certain region, for instance, it won't it can't sort out whether the suburban locales around uh, these urban locales are open or not. For instance, you know, in, in Washington State, you know, most of our 
our school systems remain fully remote. Um, and that's uh, in large part due to the guidelines that were set out by our state in terms of when it's safe to reopen. Well, in Boston, I know that the teacher union is really opposed to opening the schools and uh, they have insisted that the schools remain closed. They're putting a lot of pressure on the, on the uh, school leadership. And, and the same is true, I know this because I, I get emails from the Chicago Teachers Union. They're just um, you know, insistent on this. And the same is true in New York City, which did open, it does have a hybrid thing, but they're under tremendous pressure from the union. So I would think the, the teachers unions is another big factor out there why you, where they're, within, they're much stronger in big cities than they are in smaller towns and rural areas, but they must be mm -hmm. a story as well. Yeah, I think that there is some research to indicate that. Um, although our study, you know, we we kind of don't, we just don't have the the data in our in our data set to to verify that. So, so you are you projecting then that going forward we're going to have schools closed all the way till summertime? You know, I think it it is difficult to tell. I do know, I mean, it does sound like the federal administration is really um, in, uh, committed to reopening and we'll see what, um, what the new Biden administration can do from its perch. It does sound like there is a lot more emphasis on getting resources uh, to school systems for reopening. Um, and to states to, you know, uh, accelerate um, vaccination campaigns in a way that um, will make it more possible. We also are seeing um, that a lot of states have are prioritizing teachers in the vaccination line, so that may also facilitate reopening. I think um, I've I've somewhat given up on predicting where this virus is going to take us um, at this point, but I think we're all pretty hopeful that, that there are some opportunities uh, for reopening um, coming up. Yes, but uh, at the same time, those vaccines are being promised left and right, but they aren't showing up. So I, I wouldn't get, you know, wild as much as we would like to be. Um, so now you find that districts are open pretty much for younger kids and older kids, uh, despite the fact that COVID is more risky for teenagers than it is for mm -hmm. children younger than that. So, um, and that's also evident from the Education Next poll that's out there, which as parents, uh, and they find pretty much in that poll, what you find is that uh, the districts aren't drawing sharp distinctions between younger students who probably desperately need to be in the classroom if they're gonna learn anything at all, and the older kids who probably could learn a little easier online and are a little more at risk. So is that sort of, would you sort of agree with that assessment? Yeah, I mean, we do find a, a certain segment of the population of districts and it was um, around, um, it looks like around 9% in our last sample it was it was more than that um, in November when we when we looked sort of midterm it was closer to 17% of districts that were kind of varying the model based on grade spans with uh, classically more the younger kids more likely to be back in person or have some form of in person even if it's hybrid um, instruction so you know there there is a segment of districts and that was one strategy to try to ramp up access to in-person learning was to open it up uh, open in-person learning up to to younger students first but you're seeing they're sort of abandoning that right isn't didn't you say they moved away from that in the last month 
Yeah, what we see in over the last month is just a generalized shift towards more remote instruction. In fact, when we look at and we kind of look at districts as to, you know, and say, are you getting more remote or more in person? We kind of make a, a, a split there. So if you're going from, say, in per, fully in person to hybrid, we call that kind of moving more remote. But if you're moving um, from remote to, say, varies by grade, we call that moving more in person. We found about 15% of the districts in our sample had shifted to a, to a more remote model. So there is a, a shifting away from the in-person opportunity. So 15% were moving in the remote direction and, and what percentage was moving actually in the opposite direction? Only about 4%. 4%, so a net of 11%. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it does sound like uh, there was a uh, response to the COVID there. Although in the Education Next survey, they found that actually there was more in-person learning where there was an increasing amount of COVID and vice versa, where there was less of a danger, there was more remote. So, but tell me why that could be. Well, I mean, it's it's hard, you know, it's hard to tell. We'll have to tease that apart. But one hypothesis might be that um, sort of two two effects converging. One is that the as we talked about earlier, the vast majority of the in person instruction was happening in rural settings, um, and they opened in a, a sort of a rural model. And our rural communities were later to see sort of the influx of cases in, in many in many places. Um, you know, they really, uh, a lot of the rural communities didn't start to see the increase in cases until the fall um, and in, into the fall. Uh, at that point, they'd already established that they were back in person and there's a kind of um, almost like a stickiness to the model that you're in in the fall. It's like you've invested in opening in this, in this model, expectations are, are set around students going into, into class, you've got the routine set up for wearing masks or, or the protocols for social distancing and, and you just you know really try to stay committed to that. I think that could be two things that are converging that are seeing, seeing you know leading to this, this situation where um, cases might be rising, but the in-person, they're holding firm to in-person instruction. I think you kind of see the same thing on the remote learning setting, like once the school systems have invested in the remote learning um, apparatus, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a new lift to shift into an in-person model um, and set up the new protocols for in-person. So there is a kind of stickiness to, to remote learning, even, even as a lot of uh, educators and, and parents and administrators are all, you know, sort of, you know, wanting to have more in-person instruction. So I like your concept of stickiness. I think that that really does capture a lot of what's going on because even though you are noticing a shifting towards remote, it's still only 15% of the districts. Uh, so what share were totally remote when schools opened in the fall, according to your website? Um, totally remote uh, when schools opened in the fall. And this is when, so we did this uh, collection around uh, the end of August. Um, and so there were a lot of delays. So it, it may not have been exactly when they were open, but this was near the end, the very end of the tail end of the summer. And so we had about 26% fully remote at that point. And now it's now it's 32%. 32%. So it is a shift, 
but it's not, you know, it's not like a double. Right, it, it's, right. There is a, you can see a stickiness in there that says right. unwilling to change your model once you've set it up for the year, which actually is one of the reasons why I'm sort of um, pessimistic about how quickly things are going to change uh, because it's going to take a long time for people to get vaccinated and, and then, the, it, then there's going to be stickiness beyond that. You know, that's sort yeah. of I fear is, is what we're in for here. Um, one, one bit of optimism that if, we, if we're looking for little glimmers of hope in here, uh, the one thing that we can look to is that through the fall, we did see, you know, a fairly substantial increase in the number of districts that were, were opening a little bit. Um, that they were sort of letting the younger students come in. In fact, you know, between August and November, we saw um, almost a doubling in those districts. It went from about 8% to 16%. So we, we already have seen a willingness of many districts to sort of dip their foot into reopening. Um, and that strategy of phasing it up could be seen as a strategy that is more viable um, and could help dislodge some of that stickiness. Uh, now you've broken it out by urban rural, but you haven't broken it out by the percentage minority in the, in the school district. Do you have that information? We did do that in, in our earlier analysis. Um, and, you know, the sort of the coincidence of, um, we did it by uh, poverty uh, levels and the coincidence of poverty, uh, uh, race and urbanicity and locale are, are pretty strong. So, um, uh, you know, in, in those, when we did do those breakouts, what we saw is that, again, students, uh, students uh, who are living in households of poverty were disproportionately enrolled in remote only um, models. So what do you think um, is the cost in education of going fully remote? Uh, parents report in the Ednex poll that kids learn less, sometimes a lot less in the remote uh, model than in the in-person model. Um, and you're reporting on your website that schools are not doing a lot of assessing or what is the percentage of districts that are doing assessments of students? Um, I think we found about half. Um, and this is that, that are reporting on their websites that they're doing some sort of formalized assessments um, like an iReady assessment or a MAP assessment or Dibbles. Um, that's what we're, we're finding. So is that, is that glass half full or half empty, would you say? Does that make you worry about how much learning is taking place on that online platform? Well, yeah, I mean, I think what what we what we actually have though are some results coming back from organizations like NWEA um, and uh, Curriculum Associates, which runs the iReady, that that tells us you know what they're observing in in the in the results of um, you know for students who have been assessed this year, uh, and you know I think that you know they're they're offering us some some fairly worrying trends, um, you know, MAP, um, the NWEA, the people who oversee the MAP uh, found that math uh, progress is, is quite a bit slower this year than it was in previous years. They didn't find quite as, as big a slowdown in 
reading progress as they anticipated, but they did see it in mass. And folks from curriculum associates, the iReady assessments uh, have also seen sort of a, a, a slowing progress in uh, in both reading and math um, with particular, uh, particularly worrying trends for the really youngest readers are um, uh, first and second graders uh, with a, a larger number than typical, a larger number of students um, reading well below grade level um, in those early grades. Yeah, and those uh, NWEA results might be a little optimistic given their, their sampling because they, they weren't able to get quite as representative a group uh, in the right. recent survey. So things could even be worse than the, the numbers that they showed, uh, it seemed to me. Um, so, um, so now I just noticed that uh, the uh, Center for Reinventing Public Education, your colleague just put out a paper saying that there's a 3% decline in enrollment in the state of Washington. That's also echoed in the state of Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. And um, and the survey data say parents are reporting a nine percent drop, which is you know it's just a poll. There's plenty of error in the estimates. Uh, um, I, I, I wouldn't swear that by, but I would. All these numbers sound like people are leaving district-operated schools. Um, do the does the does the school system do the school systems across the country need to worry about this? I would think so. Um, I would think so. I think that they would, you know, there are obviously financial implications of declining enrollment um, and a sharp, any sharp decline in enrollment can be really problematic for the finances in the following year uh, when school districts are sort of reimbursed on a per student basis. Um, you know, the other thing that we're seeing in, in early enrollment trends too is a sharp decline in kindergarten enrollment, which, you know, stands to reason from the standpoint of parenting that, if, you know, the idea of starting your, your kindergartner in a full remote or even hybrid setting might seem daunting, um, more daunting than maybe holding them back for a year and then trying again next year um, with the hope that schools are reopened. Um, so this could mean that next year, um, you know, you have some really unusual enrollment patterns coming into school systems. Uh, there will be, in addition to like a really uh, heightened need to accelerate, uh, to understand um, where students are academically and measuring their academic progress in these early grades, you're going to have a, a, an even more complex challenge around sort of placing and enrolling students in kindergarten and first grade as a result of this. But I think there's also some evidence, at least in Massachusetts, of a drop off at the other end that uh, students are, you know, not not showing up for the last year of schooling or, or, or shifting off to college more quickly or just disappearing into the streets. Um, are you seeing that any any evidence elsewhere? So we haven't analyzed that specifically. So we're uh, so we haven't. Uh, so we don't have any evidence of that, but I, I, I certainly think it could be possible. We do know that college enrollments, however, first year college enrollments are down um, across the country. So um, there, you know, there may be a lot of uh, patterns in, in terms of enrollment and student enrollment that, that we need to sort through. Yeah, that's, that's definitely the case. But then I think there's some evidence that private school enrollments are picking up charter. Mm -hmm. Well, that's reported in your 
the census report today on, on charter school enrollments are up. So mm -hmm. good charter school enrollments, aren't they just as likely to be remote as the, as the district schools? Uh, you know, I think that varies really by by region and state based on um, how firm the the regulations are, the guidelines are from the state around opening status. Um, but uh, you know, it's certainly possible that uh, the the smaller school size that a that a lot of charter schools offer, or just an alternative to what their uh, what uh, supports are being offered in school districts that some parents are finding that the charters are offering them um, something, uh, you know, something new and, and more supportive. Well, Bethany, when are we, uh, when should we look forward to your next report? Um, I know you're monitoring this on a continuing basis. Um, what's the next, uh, what's the next point in the, in the experience that we're going to hear from you on? Yeah, um, so we're we're hoping that uh, sometime in February or early March we'll we'll get we'll sort of send send ourselves back to those websites to see what's going. Uh, we're going to try to time it um, and pay attention to uh, when we're hearing school districts um, talk about possible reopening plans so that we can capture that. Um, and so it does seem like March 1st seems to be a big date that we're hearing about a lot for some form of reopening. So we'll, we'll see. It'll probably be sometime around the end of February, or early March. And I know researchers want to know if you're going to make your avail data available around the country to yeah, well, it actually is available. Um, we were able to post it last week. Um, we have a kind of sister website called the Evidence Project, and it's an initiative that uh, the, the Center on Reinventing Public Education launched last summer uh, as a way to sort of aggregate uh, all of the evidence that was kind of coming out really fast and furious through um, through this uh, period of time. Uh, and uh, we're posting our data there on that website. Um, and uh, we um, uh, are happy to share it out with whoever, whoever wants to use it. So if somebody wants to go find out whether the COVID incidence is correlated with, um, with the, the, what the districts are doing, they could actually do that with your data. They could. Um, and there are other data sources that folks are doing to do that kind of correlation too. Um, and so uh, I, there was definitely um, some, some early studies that have, that have done that um, and probably are due for an updating with the, with the new case rates and things like that. So, yeah. Well, thank you very much for um, uh, joining me on the Education Exchange, Bethany. Thanks for having me. I have been speaking with Bethany Gross, Associate Director of the Center for Reinventing Public Education and the senior author of the recently released report entitled U-Turns, Surge of COVID Cases Reverses Reopening Progress in America's School Districts. Thank you, Bethany, for joining me on the Education Exchange. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me every Monday at noon when our weekly podcast is released on the Education X website.